It's okay. <laughs> Great. This morning we are uh, kind of beginning to set something up. Um, next week typically would be our kind of vision Sunday, as it were, but uh, we're not necessarily gathering around vision, fresh vision as such, but I do think that there's something that God wants to speak to us, and uh, we're just kind of pressing in for that and downloading that at the moment. Uh, but just kind of want to begin to set that up a little bit this morning. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. There we go. Ephesians chapter 5. <laughs> this is going great. Right, we're going to read from verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. At Glasgow Elam Church, worship forms a huge part of our Sunday morning experiences. In fact, we should say sung worship forms a huge part of our Sunday morning experiences. And for some of us, that's great because we just love to sing. But for others, it's maybe not quite so enjoyable. And whether you love to sing worship or whether you're one who struggles with the volume as in quantity of worship, regardless of which one you are, there's probably one question that I'm sure will have crossed your mind at some point and that's why. Why so much singing? And when you think about it, church must be one of the few places nowadays where people come together to sing. In the day and age of social media and technology, when conversation is becoming a bit of a lost art, very few contexts in life see people coming together for the sole purpose of singing. Now that said, music is still a huge part of society. Adverts, radios, social media, TV shows, pubs, clubs, restaurants, shops, supermarkets are all contexts in which we experience and in some senses we engage with music. Music is a big part of the makeup of society. It's a big part of our experience within society. But the problem is that the prevalent culture within our current societal framework is one that focuses on consumerism. We are consumers of music but we're not really participants in music. That is, until you come along to Glasgow Elam on a Sunday morning and we churn out a solid 30 to 45 minutes of back-to-back -back singing every single service. But we come back to the original question then, why? Why does worship involve singing? Why sing so much? Why sing? And the honest answer is because the Bible tells us to. The scriptures are packed full of calls, of invitations, of commands to sing. Let me give you some. First Chronicles 16, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day. Psalm 9, Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Psalm 30. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Psalm 47 perhaps just reinforces the point. 
Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. And they say that the problem with modern worship is repetition. <laughs> Psalm 66, probably my favorite. Sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Now we list so many to kind of make a point and we could go on and on and on to quote call after call from the scripture inviting us to sing to him, to express our heart of worship before him in song. And if we seek to build these together moments upon a foundation of scripture, then it's important that these together moments contain times of sung worship because the scripture repeatedly calls us to express our hearts in this way. However, as we say that, we've got to be careful that we approach his call to sing properly. The singing that we are called to adopt is not merely a coming together to sing about God, it's actually much, much deeper than that. When God calls us to come together before him and sing, it's not just about opening up our mouths and letting a sound out. That's called being a choir. We're not called to choir practice every Sunday. We're not called to come together and perform for him. We're called to come together and minister to him. This worship stuff is not about putting on a choir performance. Our act of worship is to minister to his heart. One preacher put it once in a very simplistic sense, actually it might sound a bit crass, but he said, worship is what God gets out of the service. You know, too often we come and we talk about, oh, I got a lot out of that word today, or I got a real experience in ministry. Quite often we talk about it in reverse about what we didn't get, but we talk about what we got. But actually within the confines of a service then, worship, God inhabits all of it and it's all for him, but Worship is the part he gets out of the services because it's not about us, it's about him. And that means it's not actually about our styles or our preferences. It's all about his preferences. And that's why we come back to scripture to understand, well, what is God's preference with regards to these moments of worship that are supposed to be all about him? And, and as we arrive at that, there is something quite important that we have to call out and that we have to understand because according to Amos, it's not the mere sound of singing that moves God's heart. The prophet Amos teaches this when he reveals God's voice as saying, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. So clearly from this, it's not the sound of singing. Now obviously there's some deeper stuff going on that Amos or God is dealing with through the prophet Amos, but what we see in these verses in chapter five and what we come to realize is that religious singing about religious stuff in a religious setting is not enough. And in fact, in some senses, it can actually be offensive to God because it's not the sound of singing that moves God. It's the spirit with which it's done that touches his heart. And that's what our verses in Ephesians 5 tell us. Ephesians 5 gives us clear instruction for the practice of singing within the framework of a New Testament church. And it calls out some very important dynamics. And I'm not entirely sure how many of these we're going to get to today, but we'll see how we go on. The first big hallmark that we recognize is that singing should be spirit-filled. You'll notice First off, that according to these verses, our singing should flow out of an infilling of the Holy Spirit. Our singing should be 
spirit-filled. And this is the point that we kind of major on mostly this morning. Now, that sounds like an obvious statement to make within Pentecostal churches. And while it is an obvious statement to make, it's not necessarily something that's easy to embed or implement within a culture. And even as I say that our singing should be spirit-filled, it already probably conjures up in our minds something of what it should look like and therefore what it should sound like. So let me call out from the get-go that what we're not talking about here is singing in tongues. When we talk about our singing being spirit-filled, what we are meaning is that the singing within the confines of worship should be unlike singing in any other context because it's not rooted in the natural, it's rooted in the spiritual. Our singing should have a spiritual dimension to it and that then has to begin to change our perception of worship and our perception of singing. Singing within services isn't service padding. It's not time-filling. It's not what we do until we get to the good stuff, the Word. Because to have that kind of mindset is to have a consumer mindset and to have a mindset that is focused entirely upon the self. Let's get past the worship stuff and get to the Word till we hear what God is saying. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just ride it out through the worship till we get to the ministry time when we can get to the experience and encounter stuff. But such an approach actually places the focus entirely upon us. Worship should be the part of the service where we position our focus correctly, where we position our focus as we intend it to be for the remainder of the service. We position it on Him. Worship is spiritual. It's deep times because worship is a heart-shifting moment. It should be a heart-shifting moment, a time in which we alter the lens of the heart when we move the crosshairs of the soul to land upon God and to declare that everything from this moment onwards, everything, the word, the ministry, the fellowship and friendship moments, the hospitality, the prayer and intercession times, everything from this moment forward is to be about Him. Everything is to flow out of that focus that is now attached purely to Him. Worship is a heart-shifting moment. It's one that focuses the soul upon God. And if that's the case, then our times of worship, of corporate worship, should be profoundly spiritual. They should be more than just singing and making a sound. They should have a spiritual dimension to them. And they should do that because our singing is to flow out of our being filled with the Spirit. Verse 18 and 19 says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The writer of Ephesians gives us a couple of commands and the first is not to get drunk on wine. Now let's be clear that the Bible does not condemn drinking wine nor does it condemn drinking alcohol. Rather its condemnation is attached to this being done in excess. It's drunkenness that the scripture takes an issue with and it takes an issue with it because of where it leads to. It leads to debauchery. Now debauchery ain't really a word that we use these days. It's not a word you hear down the bus stop or in the queue at Greg's. It's quite an old-fashioned word, and it's one that you'd expect to hear in a carry-on movie, normally followed by the phrase, ooh, matron. <laughs> and that, in a sense, probably explains it quite well for us. The dictionary definition of debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. And when we bring that into 
what has been said in the passage, drinking too much alcohol leads to excessiveness and it leads to in relation to sensual pleasures. In other words, it impacts the senses and it impacts the experiences that we have. The message translation puts it brilliantly, it puts it this way, very bluntly, don't drink too much wine, it cheapens life. Now, before we move on to this, because we are pushing past it, but before we move on to it, we have to acknowledge the fact that the Bible gives this as a command. Do not get drunk. It's a command. It's an order. And it's one that's backed up in other places in Scripture. So we have to hear it and we have to receive it. But this morning, we focus on the fact that this command is then followed by another. In fact, the other is offered as an alternative. Do not get drunk in wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead... Be filled with the Spirit. And in the same way as before, the writer gives the command and then he gives the reason for the command. He says, don't get drunk with wine because of where it leads to. And then he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. And here's where that leads to. It leads to speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from the heart, always giving thanks to God. It leads to worship, which brings us to our point. Our worship should be Spirit-filled. Our together times, our gathering times, our, our expressions of the heart, our movements in worship, they are to spring from, they have to flow from, they have to be rooted in, and they have to be an expression of being filled with the Spirit of God. These times have to be Holy Spirit times. These expressions have to be Holy Spirit expressions. And these moments that we spend together, even right now, have to become Holy Spirit moments. Our worship is to flow out of the flowing in of the Holy Spirit. Our worship is to flow out of the flowing in of the Spirit. Now, Ephesians 5 he makes a, a pretty strong case that our expression of worship is to be linked to our experience of the Spirit. And we can see examples of worship being linked to the experience of the Spirit in Scripture. Jesus is declared as worshiping in the Spirit in Luke 10, verse 21, and it says, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learn, learned and revealed them to little children. Jesus' moment of worship here flowed out of the movement of the Spirit in his life. It was the joy that the Holy Spirit cultivated in him that fueled his expression of praise. The fullness of joy that the Holy Spirit brought to his experience was manifest in his expression of worship. And you might say, well, it's Jesus. Of course, it's marked by the movement of the Holy Spirit. Of course, his worship is. Everything he does is marked by the Spirit's function in his life. Well, okay, we come then and we look at Simeon in Luke chapter 2. And Simeon worships God as he holds the baby Jesus in his arms and his moment of worship was inspired and flowed out of the movement and the presence of the Spirit. And Luke tells us the story. He says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Look clearly as he tells us the story, he tells us that the Holy Spirit is on Simeon. He's present in Simeon's life. He was a reality to him, but it was specifically the Holy Spirit moving him that resulted in this expression of worship. The movement of the Spirit in his life brought about this moment of worship. We follow <clears throat> the same train of thought in to Acts chapter 2, and the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and when they spill out into the square, the Scripture says that the people round about said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result is that they begin to worship and they begin to declare praise to God. It's interesting that this is where their baptism in the Holy Spirit led to. It led to the declaration of the wonders of God. Their infilling of the Spirit led to declared worship. Now, you may think to yourself, well, hang on a minute, Fraser, because they were filled with the Spirit and they began to declare wonders. This is them declaring evangelism. This is them sharing the gospel. You could even say with Simeon that as he held the baby Jesus in his arms, what we read of him doing is, is praying. But actually, the point that we're making here is that all of that is an actual fact worship. The sharing of the heart in the service of the gospel, the sharing of the heart and the task of prayer and intercession is as much worship as the singing of a worship song because worship is about the expression of the heart. For the disciples, the movement of the Spirit in their lives led to their moment of worship. Now bring that back to Ephesians 5. We're told that our moments of worship should flow out of the movement of the Spirit. Our worship is to be spirit-filled, but what does that mean, to be spirit-filled? Unfortunately, in our Pentecostal circles, we have tended to reduce being baptized and filled with the Spirit to just merely speaking in tongues, but being filled with the Spirit is much, much more than that. And in a sense, we actually get a glimpse of what being filled with the Spirit is from Paul's warning not to get drunk with wine and the fact that he kind of links the two. Getting drunk with wine is to have so much wine that it impacts your actions, your feelings, and your speech. To be drunk with alcohol is to have drunk so much alcohol that the alcohol influences you and makes you act and makes you feel in certain ways. And we're told that instead of getting drunk, we are to be filled with the Spirit. That is, we are to allow the Holy Spirit to be such an influence in us. We are to allow Him to influence our feelings, our actions, our speech. <clears throat> The presence of the Spirit, the impact of His infilling is to be visible, tangible. Not just in the phenomena of speaking in tongues, but His influence is to be visibly present in our conduct, in our communication, in the expression of our emotions. And this then becomes a real challenge. Is the influence of the Spirit noticeably present in our conduct, in our communication, in the way that we express our emotions? Permit me to be direct and ask that as a question. Do those around you recognize the Spirit's influence in the things that you say and in the way that you journey through this world and in your reactions and your emotional responses? Now, please, we're not advocating here that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're instantly transformed into a state of sinless perfection. That's not the case. 
Scripture tells us that we have been transformed into Christ's likeness from one degree in experience of glory to the next, which affirms the point that we need to continually come to him and be filled time and time again that the influence of the Spirit can be seen in who we are. The cards on the table, this is 100% a work in progress for me personally. And those who are closest to me and those who are around me often will testify to this, and I'd appreciate it if you didn't ask them about it at the end of the service. But I can't help but feel that maybe we need to redefine our understanding a bit. Maybe we need to broaden the purpose of our infilling of the Spirit from just being about speaking in tongues. Maybe we need to come afresh to Him and ask Him to fill us afresh and permission Him to transform our conduct and our behavior, our speech and our communication and emotional reactions and emotional responses. Maybe we need to come and say, okay, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. And I ask that you would not just bring me into an experience of this phenomenon of speaking in tongues, but actually I ask that you would cause your influence to be outworked in every single aspect of who I am. We are to be so filled with his Spirit that he pours out of us in every way and he pours out of us through every external opportunity. We need to broaden that understanding. As Paul writes to the Ephesian church and gives them the command to be full of the spirit and not full of the vino, he kind of explains the reason why he gives this command. And he gives the reason in the verses leading up to the ones that we've parked on, and we're not going to read them, so let me give you the summary. He tells them that the days in which they are living are evil. And that statement that applied to them could equally apply to us today. These are really difficult days that we are living in. And in difficult times, we are commanded that when we're worried, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, when we're concerned, that which we've to turn to is the Spirit of God and let him influence our actions and our emotions and our reactions. But take this even a step further. With this link, tenuous though it may be, but with this link between the infilling of the spirit and, and drinking too much wine, think about it. The main reason why many of us enjoy a wee Chardonnay, a dram, a G&T, or the sherbet of your choice, the reason that many of us enjoy a drink is because it relaxes us and it makes us feel happy. Drinking alcohol is not wrong, it's not condemned in Scripture, but what we read here actually is more than just a significant command, it's actually a significant invitation. We are invited to find our happiness and our joy in the Spirit of God. Take the wine aspect out of it if you like, we have to find our happiness and our joy in Him and not to find its source purely in the things of the world. We have to find joy in the Holy Spirit because that's what he brings. John Piper, a bit of a theological hero of mine, says this, to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be caught in the joy that flows among the Holy Trinity. We park on that for a moment. There is a joy that flows among the Trinity. And there's moments in Scripture that we actually get a glimpse of that joy flowing amongst the Trinity. 
Right at the very beginning of the Gospels, Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, and we're told that the heavens open, and the voice of the Father is heard announcing, this is my Son, whom I love, and Him I am well pleased. We see in this moment God delighting in His Son. As Jesus is getting ready to step into His ministry, God the Father is rejoicing over His Son. He's finding joy in His boy. And it's important that we call out that as that joy of the Father is announced over the Son, there's something else going on. We're told the Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon Him. The Father expresses His joy over the Son and the Spirit of God is present, manifesting in that moment. And then we come in Luke chapter 10, which is the verse that we've already read and We're in this moment when Jesus is rejoicing in the Father and he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus is praising God and he's worshiping and in his worship, we can read of his joy. In fact, you can almost hear it in his words. He's rejoicing in the Father. He's expressing his delight and his pleasure in the Father. In fact, he finds pleasure in what the Father finds pleasure in. He's rejoicing because of what the Father has been pleased to do. Which brings us to the point that we made last time we gathered, that we find our joy by pursuing that which brings him joy. And here's Jesus, he's rejoicing in the Father and and he's expressing his joy towards the Father. And as Luke gives a commentary on this joy-filled Jesus moment, look at how he describes it. He describes Jesus as full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So we've got in the baptism moment, the Father expressing joy towards the Son and the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then we've got in this moment, Jesus expressing joy towards the Father and it's all rooted in the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a joy that flows among the Godhead. A delight between the Father and the Son in such supernatural Such divine joy is expressed and revealed in the Holy Spirit, which means that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be caught up in the joy that is flowing amongst the Holy Trinity. It's to experience that joy. It's to have that joy, to know that joy, to possess that joy, a joy that is unlike any other, a joy that is entirely supernatural and is rooted in the pleasure and the delight of the Godhead. And such joy flows from the Godhead into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Acts 13 verse 52 says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Their joy is linked to their filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, their joy is sourced in their infilling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for some of us today, God is calling us to find our own Acts 13 verse 52 moment. Maybe he's calling us to remove our inhibitions, take the walls down, and invite him to fill us with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And suddenly our definition of the baptism and the infilling of the Spirit broadens yet again. That the infilling of the Spirit brings about an experience of phenomenal joy. Let's no longer pigeonhole it in a supernatural phenomena, great as though that is. But let's embrace it for all that it is. 
The question that naturally arises then is, well, how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? And we come back again to Paul's link to being filled and getting drunk in wine. How do you get drunk in wine? Don't answer. It's simple, apparently. You get drunk by drinking wine and keep on drinking wine. And the same is true of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the verb for be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, it's in the present tense. And it basically means keep on being filled. Be filled and keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So the infilling of the Spirit is not a one-off thing. And I know that there's a difference in theology within the church of Jesus Christ about the infilling of the Spirit. Some say you're filled with the Spirit at the point of salvation. Some, i.e. us, would say, actually, no, it's a secondary experience to be sought and to be found. But here's the issue with both of those viewpoints. Both theologies, when worded that way, mark out a specific moment that you are filled as though it's a tick box exercise. Right, that's me filled with the Holy Spirit. I can tick that off my things to do this side of eternity checklist. But the truth is, we are to be filled and then we are to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that we are to open up our lives time and time again and receive afresh and afresh and afresh the Holy Spirit and the joy that the Holy Spirit brings to our lives. And see if we do that, it actually doesn't matter which way you frame the baptism or the infilling of the Spirit. It doesn't matter whether you frame it as happening at the point of salvation or whether you frame it as happening as a secondary experience because if we open up our lives to be continually filled, regardless of what way we package it, we're always going to end up at the same result, being filled. Now hear the heart on this. I will believe and teach all day long that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience to be sought and to be had. But I think sometimes we become so caught up in defending that theology that we've missed the point. It's not a one-off thing. We are to continually, continually be filled. And whatever way we package it up, it doesn't really matter. Let's open up our lives and ask Him to fill us afresh and we'll all arrive at the same place anyway. Paul encourages us. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Our singing is to flow out of being filled with the Spirit. But while it's to be Spirit-filled, it's also to be heart-felt. Because we are to sing and make music from our hearts to the Lord. So homework number two and with this, we navigate towards a conclusion. Our singing is to flow out of the heart. Now, the fact that singing is to flow from the heart and not just the mouth means that when it comes to worship, our singing is to carry meaning and to convey feeling. Singing with your heart means more than just moving your lips and letting a sound out. It means that you mean and you feel everything that you express. In other words, it's authentic. Authenticity is found in the absence of pretense. Authenticity breathes through integrity. It's found when we're real about how we feel and it's found when we're true to what we feel. And that means that for our worship and our singing to be authentic, 
then that must mean that in the moments when we are red hot for God and we feel like we're going to burst if we can't shout and let out a celebration, well, authenticity means bringing that passionate worship and letting it breathe and explode before God. But equally, for our worship and our singing to be authentic, then it must also mean bringing an expression of worship, even in the times that we don't feel like that. And by that, we don't mean slapping a smile on it, pretending that we're on the mountaintop. Neither do we mean that we gee ourselves up and we work ourselves into false fervor. That's pretense. And the God who declares that he sees the heart and examines the heart before he looks at actions and thoughts, he's a God that will take no pleasure in platitudes of pretense. He calls us to be authentic worshipers. And that means that the times when we're not red hot for God, but we wish that we were. And the times when we're not red hot for God, but we long to be again, well, we need to bring that longing before him and let it find its expression before God. And actually, more than let it find its expression, we need to allow it to shape our expression in that moment. See, God sees the heart. And he takes delight when we come real honest and open and we bring the heart before him regardless of its condition and we bring it into an expression of worship because that's called authenticity. So authentic worship means bringing the pain in the sore seasons and the sorrow in the hard seasons and venting them before God. It means bringing the tears and the anguish, the sorrow and the remorse, the longing and the hoping and recognizing that expressing the heart with those contents is just as much worship as expressing the heart of celebration and jubilation. See, God already knows the heart. He already knows the contents of the heart. He knows the journey that we're on and the stuff that we're encountering. So why would we pretend that it's not there? We just need to bring it before him and be honest and real. And let those things vent in worship because to not do that would be to hide behind pretense. Now, I know that there's times when we can come and we can make the decision to worship regardless of how we're feeling. And there are times in which when we do that, we lose ourselves in worship and maybe even find relief from the burdens that we're carrying, sometimes momentarily, sometimes permanently. That happens. But also recognize that there's times when that doesn't happen. When no amount of praising and hollering, no amount of worshiping can shift the turmoil in the soul, the pain in the heart, and the grief that we carry. And do you know what? That's okay. Because our call is to worship him with that. When we honor him authentically with all of our hearts, he honors us with all of his heart. And we only need to look at Hannah and First Samuel pouring out our soul to see evidence of that. The problem is that all too often we allow the pain and the anguish, the sorrow and the remorse to steal our song instead of shape it. We are called to sing before him, to express the heart of worship and adoration, but we mustn't allow the circumstances of life to steal our song, but we should always allow them to shape our song. And what that looks like is allowing the genuine emotions within us to define our singing and not to silence it. We have to become a people that learn to sing in every season of life. We have to become a people that are not only okay and learn to sing in every season of life, but are okay with what it looks like when we do. It's okay for tears and sorrow to be heard in our worship moments here. 
It's okay for sobs and weeping to be heard in amongst the adoration and the I love yous to God. It's okay for grief to vent and pain and hurt to breathe in amidst the declarations and the thanksgiving because such sounds, the sounds of hearts being laid bare before him, they're as much worship as any other expression is. Because worship's about the heart, not the sound. It flows from the heart. And if worship flows from the heart, then we need to let the contents of the heart flow out within the context of worship. It was Jesus that said that he's looking for those who worship in spirit and truth. So we need to ditch the pretentious praise postures and bring our truth before him in worship. Our truth of who we are, our truth of where we're at, our truth of what we're going through and what it is that we're feeling because authenticity is what he asks for and authenticity is what he honors. And when we honor him with our hearts, broken though they might be, he honors us with all of his heart. And his heart is always full and whole and filled with love and power. That means that there is healing to be found in moments of authentic worship. There's deliverance and freedom to be found in moments of worship when we lay the heart bare before him. There is a spiritual dimension to be found in moments when the heart, full on joy-filled or heavy and sorrowful, comes before him and just begins to sing because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So when we sing before him in the good and the bad, we let our heart flow out before him and he honors our authenticity by pouring all of his heart into ours. Did you know that you don't need to wait to a ministry altar call to receive healing in this house? Did you know that you don't need to wait until someone binds something and loses something to find freedom and deliverance in this house? Did you know that in actual fact, power and dynamic and transformation and healing and wholeness can be found when we come with our hearts full, broken, open, joy-filled, sorrowful, and just empty them before him? In that moment of authentic worship, he breathes all over it and he invades our hearts with his. Child of God, don't let the season of life steal your song. Let it shape it. Sing the song that your heart contains because there's power in doing that. There is freedom that the world cannot offer and it's only found when the heart sings its song to God. Our song is to be spirit-filled, but it's also to be heart-filled. As the worship team come, let me throw out the last three and we're not going to explain them. I'll just throw them out because we don't have time and you can think about them later. Our singing is to be spirit-filled, it's to be heartfelt, and it's to be God-focused. We are to sing and make music from our hearts to Him. All of our singing, everything that takes place within moments of worship is to be focused towards Him. Every song, every note, every expression is to be done for Him, to Him, towards Him because it is all entirely about Him. Spirit-filled, God-focused, heartfelt are to be the basic tenets and the hallmarks of our worship, but we cannot neglect the fact also that our singing is to be corporate found. We are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This really is something of a mandate. It's a mandate for corporate worship. You cannot obey this command in solitude. We have to come together, church. We have to come together and be part of a singing community that is filled with the Spirit, moved by the heart, and focused upon God. The church is to be a singing church. 
And not because this is to be a place where we come together and sing nice songs, but because when we sing, the heart is expressed before God, and this is to be a place where our heart connects with His. Lastly, our singing is to be thanks-fueled. We are to always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where we're at in our journey. It doesn't matter what we're going through, whether this is a good season, a bad season, or an indifferent one. If you look, there is always something to thank Him for. Because He's always at work. And we enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Worship is to be spirit-filled. It's to be heartfelt. It's to be God-focused. It's to be corporate-found. And it's to be thanks-fueled. And as we journey into this next few weeks and what God is calling us into in this next immediate season, and I know we talk about seasons a lot, but it's about what is immediately before us. We need to begin to come to a place where we embody that church, where we learn to sing again. Don't let the season of life steal your song. Let it shape it. Express it before Him. Bring it to Him. And when you come with authentic worship, watch as He breathes all over that and fills your heart with His. And as the Spirit is released, you will be caught up into the joy that flows amongst the Godhead. Let's stand together, shall we?